Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. He was supposed to be locked up forever, behind the gates and walls of the hospital for the criminally insane. He had been found not guilty by reason of insanity for three murders, but had confessed to even more killings and vicious assaults. He was committed for life in 1978, and that was where he was supposed to stay. But then, the rules changed. The Supreme Court of Canada had declared that the automatic and indefinite incarceration of those judged insane violated the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Did this mean he could one day be released? Was his eventual freedom inevitable? For the families of his victims, it was a terrifying thought. But, according to provisions under the Mental Health Act, he was entitled to a yearly hearing by the Ontario Criminal Review Board to determine if he could be moved to a less secure facility and eventually be released. He had already been hospitalized for 15 years when they got the call. It was 1992, and it was the first year family members of his victims would be allowed to attend the hearing. For the quiet, retired couple living in Chatham, Ontario, the possibility of him ever leaving the secure mental health facility was horrifying. He was a sadistic, unrepentant killer. Their beautiful 22-year-old daughter, Donna, had been his last victim. That summer night, in July of 1977, changed the Veldboom's world forever. And there wasn't a day that went by that they didn't think of her. But their memories were painful. Donna died once, but in my mind she has died a thousand times, said her mother. Now they were faced with the prospect that her killer could one day be free. And that was something they couldn't allow to happen. Not on their watch, anyways. So on a fall day in September 1992, 
William and Joanne Veldboom drove for five hours from their home in Chatham, Ontario, to the Oak Ridge Maximum Security Psychiatric Hospital in Penetanguishene, a grim 19th century institution overlooking Georgian Bay. They were there to attend the review board hearing for the man who had murdered their daughter. He was requesting to be moved to a medium security facility in Brockville, Ontario, one that specialized in preparing psychiatric patients for their eventual return to society. He was a model patient, after all. Even the staff said so. The soft-spoken, gray-haired couple sat in a basement room at the hospital reserved for hearings. There were other family members there, too. There had been so many innocent victims. In that room, they would face the four-member review panel, and in that room, they would face him for the first time since his trial 15 years earlier. Now, he was 45 years old, but still a hulking, intimidating presence at over 200 pounds. He recognized them, knew who they were, but made no attempt to acknowledge them. The Veldbooms talked about Donna and how her violent death had impacted their entire family. How Joanne Veldboom had gone to the police two years after her daughter's death to ask to see the crime scene photos. She needed to see for herself what had happened to her daughter. She still couldn't comprehend she was gone for good. The Veldbooms wanted the members of the review board to know who their daughter was. She was a vibrant, happy young woman with her whole future ahead of her. And their only wish was to make sure that the man who had stolen her life and the life of other young women would never be allowed to walk free. Three months later, the Veldbooms got their wish. The Ontario Criminal Review Board ruled that their daughter's murderer would remain in the maximum security mental health facility. According to his doctors, he was an anomaly, a serial sexual sadist with a higher potential to reoffend than your average sexual offender. There were no statistics for him because, as his psychiatrist stated, there was no one else like him. But, regardless of his crimes, his case and his potential freedom would be reviewed every 12 months. So, the Veldbooms vowed to attend every hearing, and the following year, they were back. Another difficult trip to Penetanguishene. But this time, they were joined by even more family members of his victims, mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers. And there was someone else there, too. One of the lead detectives on the case. In fact, he had arrested the murderer in 1977. Retired police inspector Bob Young had never forgotten the killer's victims either. And he vowed to fight with the families to make sure justice continued to be served. 
Every year, they came. An annual trip they would rather not make, but one they wouldn't miss. There was strength in their numbers, and they shared a unique bond in their grief and determination to keep a killer from ever harming anyone else's daughter or sister. He had taken seven beautiful lives, maybe more, but they would make sure there would never be another. In the early years, it was mostly the parents and siblings of his victims. But as the years turned into decades, the next generation stepped in. Grandchildren, nieces, and nephews. It's been over 40 years now. Their numbers are smaller, and they know that with the passage of time, their loved ones may be forgotten. But they also know the killer hasn't changed. He's never shown any remorse, and he has never acknowledged their grief. He is evil, and he remains a threat. So, for as long as he is alive, his victims' families will make the annual pilgrimage to Penetanguishing. They will not let people forget what he did, and they will not let him slip through the cracks. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true crime story of a real-life boogeyman, a shadowy figure who climbed and crept his way into bedrooms in the dead of the night. He watched, he waited, and then he attacked before they woke. This is As They Lay Sleeping, Remembering the Crimes of Russell Johnson. Episode 1, No Forced Entry. They call it the Forest City. And with its lovely tree-lined streets and shaded parks, this pleasant and friendly place richly deserves the name. London is located in the picturesque Thames River Valley of Western Ontario, almost exactly midway between the great population centers of Toronto and Detroit, in the midst of one of the richest agricultural regions of all Canada. Two hours west of Toronto, along Highway 401, lies the city of London, Ontario. It's long held a reputation as a typical Canadian city with culture, beauty, and a thriving middle class. And it's well known for Western University and world-class medical research facilities. But back in the 1960s and early 70s, London was getting a different kind of reputation, a darker status that no one wanted to talk about. Murders were happening in London at an alarming rate, and by 1969, at least eight young people, boys and young women, had been abducted and killed. The city had even created a block parent program, the first city in Canada to do so, in order to provide safe homes in case a child was in distress. For Donna Bacchus, a single mother of two young children, 
The thoughts of a killer on the loose frightened her and often kept her awake at night. Another young girl, age 15, had just been found and the city was on edge. So on that particular night in 1969, when she awoke from another nightmare, she was shaken. She dreamt there was a stranger in her room, a dark figure standing over her while she slept. But coming out of her sleepy days, she soon realized it wasn't a dream. Her hands were tied behind her back, her head was pounding, and she was covered in blood. She finally managed to free herself and call the police. She had been raped, strangled, and left for dead. Five more similar assaults occurred over the next few years. But little was said in the local press about a serial rapist who was stalking women who lived alone. In the fall of 1973, University of Western student Mary Catherine Hicks had just begun the final year of her undergraduate degree and was hoping to pursue graduate school in France the following year. Mary and her roommate shared an apartment at 652 Talbot Street in downtown London. It was a ground-floor apartment in a converted house. On the morning of October 19th, Mary's roommate tried to wake her. She found Mary still in bed, neatly tucked under the covers. Had she overslept? Was she ill? But when she called out to her, there was no response. 21-year-old Mary Hicks was dead. The London police were called in, but there was no sign of a struggle or forced entry into the apartment. And there were no signs of trauma on the body. It appeared that Mary had died in her sleep. A kind of adult crib death, her grieving family in Toronto was told. And while a pillow was covering part of her face, the police did not consider it to be suspicious. An autopsy later determined that Mary had likely died from suffocation caused by a lethal reaction to a prescription drug. One month later, another woman was found dead in her apartment, but this time in Guelph, Ontario, a university town 120 kilometers east of London. 42-year-old Alice Ralston lived alone in a small sixplex apartment building at 50 Mercer Street in downtown Guelph. On November 30th, she was discovered dead in her bed with no apparent signs of violence. There was no forced entry into her basement apartment, which was neat and tidy. Nothing was out of place. Alice Ralston was known to have suffered from a condition that caused hardening of the arteries, so it was assumed that this is what had caused her untimely death. There was no further police investigation. Four months passed before another young woman was found dead in London, Ontario. On March 4, 1974, 27-year-old Ellen Diane Hartwick was discovered in her apartment at 352 Westlake Street. She was lying peacefully in her bed, tucked beneath the covers with a book in her hand. 
And just as they had in Mary Hicks' death, the police determined there was no foul play. A few days later, the coroner stated that Eleanor had died from an adverse reaction to prescription drugs. Again, eerily similar to Mary Hicks' cause of death. But no one challenged the findings. In the summer of 1974, Doris Ethel Brown, or Dottie, as she was known to her friends and family, had moved to Guelph after a divorce. With the end of her 30-year marriage, the 49-year-old mother of five was looking forward to a fresh start. She had rented a second-floor apartment in a building at 186 Edinburgh Road for herself and her two daughters, Laura and Colleen. On the night of August 8th, Doris's younger daughter, Colleen, was visiting relatives, so she and her eldest daughter, Laura, enjoyed a quiet evening together. Laura was excited because the next day the 16-year-old was going to get her learner's driving permit. That evening was hot and humid, so Doris decided to leave her balcony door open a little when she went to bed. The following morning, Laura woke up to the sound of her mother's alarm going off in the next room. She looked at her bedside clock and assumed they had both overslept. Laura went in to wake up her mom, but when she approached her bedside, she immediately knew something was wrong. Doris was in her bed with the blankets tucked up under her chin, but she wasn't moving. Laura called her aunt and uncle who lived nearby, but there was nothing anyone could do. Doris Brown was dead. The family doctor was contacted and Doris's body was removed from the apartment. Assuming she had died in her sleep, the police were never called. A subsequent autopsy revealed small abrasions to the throat and some small amounts of blood in her mouth and rectum. The coroner ruled that Doris Brown had died from natural causes. He concluded that she had passed away in her sleep of pulmonary edema, fluid in the lungs. The blood evidence on the body was ignored. Four and a half months later, Doris Brown's five children went through their first Christmas without their beloved mother. It was still hard for them to believe that she had simply died in her sleep. Not far from where Doris had lived, 23-year-old Diane Betts had spent the holidays with her fiancé, Jim Britton. They were very much in love, and when a bouquet of flowers was delivered to Diane's apartment just after Christmas, she naturally assumed they were from Jim. But it turned out Jim had not sent the flowers. On December 31, 1974, Jim arrived at Diane's apartment on Drew Street just after 6 p.m., the young couple were heading to a New Year's Eve party. But, as soon as Jim opened the front door to the apartment, he knew something was wrong. Walking past the overturned furniture, Jim called out for Diane, but got no response. He entered the bedroom 
and saw someone in the bed under a pile of blankets. He called out to his fiancée again, but the figure in the bed did not move. Pulling back the covers, he discovered Diane, naked and dead. Her hands were bound behind her back with pantyhose, and her bra was knotted around her neck. It was later determined that Diane had died from asphyxia, and she had been sexually assaulted after death. While investigating the scene, the Guelph police discovered one of Diane's slippers outside her apartment door. It appeared as though Diane had answered her door and had been immediately attacked. The police interviewed everyone in the building, but no one had seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. But the building superintendent informed the police he had noticed a brown Buick idling on the street in front of the apartment for a long time on the night of Diane's murder. An exhaust stain in the snow confirmed the superintendent's observation. But without a license plate number, the police didn't have much to go on. While investigating the vicious attack on Diane Betts, the Guelph police did not think about the deaths of Doris Brown or Alice Ralston. All three women had been found in their beds, but Diane and Alice's deaths had been classified as natural. A few days later, Police Chief Robert McCarran announced to the press that the city had experienced its first murder in five years. There were no suspects in the case, and they were offering a $5,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest or conviction. They had a vicious murderer, a necrophiliac on their hands, and they needed to find him before he struck again. Over the next several months, they interviewed hundreds of people in the small university town, but no further clues emerged as to who had killed Diane Betts. But back in London, the police were finally beginning to take note that something odd was happening in their city. By the end of 1974, there had been more break-ins than the previous year, and sexual offenses had doubled. Several women had been raped and choked into unconsciousness while others had awoken in the night to find a man standing over them, watching them sleep. All of the women lived in apartments, leaving the police and the victims perplexed as to how the phantom figure gained entry into their high-rise homes, including one apartment on the 15th floor of a building. And another strange thing about the attacker, he would clean up the women's apartments after he had raped and choked them. He had even done one woman's dishes. As word spread about the mysterious assaults, women started taking extra precautions to lock their balcony doors and the London press soon had a few names for the unknown assailant. He was the balcony strangler, and he was the bedroom strangler. But even his new monikers and newfound notoriety didn't seem to scare him off. The attacks continued. Three more women were raped, strangled, and left for dead. 
all of the women reported being attacked in the middle of the night by a man who they described as tall, well-built, and muscular. Fred Shell began his career with the London Police Force in 1960 and was a detective in 1977 when the attacks on women in their apartments were occurring. I was the detective and I was assigned to what in those days called the person section. So that's crimes against persons. So we investigated deaths and, and missing persons and robberies and homicides. Fred and a team of detectives were following up on every lead. There was a report of one on, uh, on Huron Street. The girl couldn't positively identify the person, but she did say that it looked a lot like a fella in her apartment building. Then, in April 1977, the bedroom strangler struck again. But this time, he made sure his victim wouldn't be talking to the police. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. 23-year-old Luella Jean George had moved to London from her parents' farm. Growing up in the country outside of Woodstock, Ontario, she enjoyed the excitement of the city. Newly engaged, she was working as a cashier at the snack bar in the Parkwood Hospital, not far from her apartment on Grand Avenue. But when she didn't show up for work on April 14th, a co-worker went to her fourth-floor apartment to check on her. Detective Fred Shell recalls arriving at the Grand Avenue apartment. I remember that um, screen door, or I can't remember if it was screen or sliding, but it wasn't locked, and that uh, she was lying face down on her bed. Nothing uh, seemed out of the way. She was unclothed. The only thing that we really noticed was some dirt on uh, one of the pillows. And uh, as if somebody's dirt from a hand or whatever uh, had smudged the, the pillow. So we, we didn't move things or do anything. We waited for our identification section to come in and take pictures and examine things. Luella Johnson had been discovered dead in her bed, much like Mary Hicks and Eleanor Hartwick, with no signs of foul play and no forced entry into the apartment. The police weren't sure what to make of the scene. But a few days later, a local man found some odd items in his garbage can. Detective Fred Shell. A few days afterwards, somebody called us from a street nearby, which was west of where she lived, and it was a, a street or two north. Um, but it was only like about three or four blocks away where the, a fella found some clothing in his garbage pail after the garbage had been taken out. It was a pair of Luella's underwear and some of her jewelry. The police then knew that someone had been inside Luella's apartment and she had likely been murdered. An autopsy later confirmed that Luella George had been raped and strangled. The police immediately issued a citywide alert. The assailant dubbed the bedroom strangler or the balcony strangler, who had been raping and choking his victims, had killed for the first time. Or so the police thought. And he likely wasn't going to stop until he was caught. Detective Sergeant Bob Young led a team of eight detectives who worked around the clock in what was now London's largest manhunt to date. The police were trying to determine if there was anything that linked all of the victims, habits, acquaintances, but there were few clues to go by. 
and forensic testing at the crime scenes yielded virtually nothing because the attacker was meticulous in cleaning up after himself and wiping away any evidence. The police interviewed hundreds of local men, including any known sexual predators in the area. They knew they were looking for someone athletic and strong, given his ability to climb up the sides of apartment buildings. Then, less than two months later, on July 16, 1977, the London police discovered the body of 22-year-old Donna Veldboom in her second-floor apartment at 25 Orchard Street. Originally from Chatham, Ontario, Donna had only been living in London for six months. When she didn't show up for her shift as a secretary at the Union Gas Company, concerned co-workers contacted the police. Retired London Police Sergeant Jeff Jones was a uniformed police constable in 1977, and 44 years later, he still remembers getting the call to check on a young woman who hadn't shown up for work. I got a call to go to an apartment at 25 Orchard Street. It should be around about 11 o'clock in the morning. And um, I was told to meet a person there from the Union Gas Company who had showed up there looking for an employee who hadn't showed up for work. So I arrived there about uh, 10 or 15 minutes after I got the call. So uh, he came down to the apartment building where she lived and had gone to the apartment and knocked on the door, but had not received any answer. So uh, I got a key from the superintendent of the building and I knocked at the door, no answer. Uh, I used the key to get in. I opened the door, went inside the apartment, and it looked very clean and tidy. Uh, there was no thing out of place. There was no signs that there'd been an issue there the night before or that day. There was no signs of a struggle or anything like that. And um, I turned down the hallway to what I thought was where the bedroom was going to be. And I uh, went, in fact, it turned out to be the bedroom. And uh, the door was open, the bedroom door was open. And I could see that there was someone in bed. Yeah, I could tell that it was a blonde girl because she had long blonde hair. And it was uh, quite visible. The, the uh, blankets and covers were pulled up over her shoulders. And she looked like she was asleep. So I called out her name once, one more time. I'd been told that her name was Donna Valboom, uh, Valboom by the um, employee at Union Gas. And there was no answer. And I, as I got closer, I could just tell that she was dead. She just uh, looked white. I touched her shoulder with my, uh, my hand and it was cold. And um, at that point, I knew that you know, there was something suspicious. Uh, young people don't die from no cause at all, uh, by and large. So uh, I radioed in and told them uh, that it looked like this was a homicide and to send some detectives out to the scene and to me from the forensic section. The first job of the officer at the scene is always to protect the scene for forensic investigation. And that's what I did, and I waited until the... Um, Detectives and the friends of people arrived. We had a short discussion in the hallway. I told him what I'd found. And uh, we went back into the bedroom. 
and uh, they pulled the, the bedclothes back from the top of her body down to her waist. And at that point, you could see that there was a cut about uh, three or four inches long under one of her, I think it was her left breast. Uh, it wasn't a deep cut, but it was, it was quite a nasty organ cut. Um, but there was no, it wasn't bleeding or anything at the time. So, um, at that point, we knew that it was a, a homicide. Donna Veldboom had been strangled and then posed in her bed. But this time, the killer had also slashed his victim, leaving a deep cut across her chest. It was also later discovered she had been sexually assaulted and bathed after death. The police found no evidence in the apartment, but a friend of Donna's revealed that she had been talking to Donna the night before when Donna had ended the call to answer a knock at her front door. Another young woman in the building told the police that a man had buzzed her apartment the night before, claiming to be a police officer. But when the woman called the police to verify, she was told no officers were at her address. When she refused to let the man in, he took off. With a secure lobby door at the front of the building, and with no sign of forced entry into Donna's apartment, the police quickly turned their attention to other residents who lived in the building. And one neighbor, in particular, attracted their immediate attention. On the next episode of As They Lay Sleeping, Remembering the Crimes of Russell Johnson. The London police narrow in on a prime suspect in the murders of Luella George and Donna Veldboon. But can they arrest him before he has a chance to flee the country? His, his apartment had been wiretapped when we uh, designated him as a suspect. They'd, uh, they had wiretap put in on his phone. And uh, we found out through the uh, one of the phone calls that he made um, calling his girlfriend that they were planning an out-of-country vacation. And I think it was something like they were going to leave on a Friday and they were going to be gone for two weeks. So um, everybody put their heads together and tried to figure out, well, there's no way that they were going to let him leave the country. And even with their number one suspect in custody, will he actually confess to his crimes? Came to the station, and um, he was in custody for about 22 hours. I think they were. They were I think it was about 22 hours. They were questioning him um, about the, uh, the the murders, and eventually he broke down. But once a suspected killer starts talking, how will the police react? to what he is telling them. He had rages inside him that he couldn't control, I was for sure. And um, he said on more than one occasion to the investigating officers, uh, the lead investigators, that he had this urge to kill and rape women. And it would just come on him. And he had to follow it through. As They Lay Sleeping, Remembering the Crimes of Russell Johnson is written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. 
Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. A special thank you to Fred Shell and Jeff Jones. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you enjoyed this story and others on Story Hunter Podcasts, please subscribe on Apple or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.